This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. Today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, we've kind of mentioned this a little bit over the last few episodes, this idea that the Holy Spirit was supposed to be a big deal. Like Jesus talks about how I need to go away so that the Spirit can come. And everyone in Acts seemed like super jazzed and excited about Pentecost and the Spirit coming and the room was shaking and like all this stuff was happening. And then they went out and they were like doing all this stuff. And and personally, like that's that was uh, my background isn't isn't with like spirit filled type of uh, Christian movement, but towards the end of like my time being a pastor, that was sort of the direction we were headed. Was like let's just gather in the morning, we'll pray, and then we'll just like literally walk out the room and see what the spirit leads us to do, and like go around and try to like do stuff, minister to people, preach about Jesus to people, heal people. I, I never healed anybody. But anyways, we were supposed to be going around doing this. And over the two or three years that I was a pastor with this with this church where we were focused on the Spirit, I don't know. I, I think I, I felt like I, I tried to create a lot of those experiences, but didn't really have a lot of those genuine experiences where I was just, you know, my socks were knocked off because the Spirit did something. Um, I'm just speaking genuinely honestly here like I didn't I didn't have those experiences to where I was legitimately wowed anyways we'll get into more of our personal experiences in a bit Um, and we did a bit of that on the utterly heretical episode that uh, came out recently so maybe you should go and check that out Um, you can do that at almostheretical.com but anyways Tim that's my uh, general setup for what we're talking about today but how does this weave into some of the stuff we've been talking about on the show yeah, I mean, it's the climax, really. It's the climax of the story. Um, and I think what we're going to try to do is do like an utterly realist, uh, honest version of the climax sort of dramatic happy ending. And what we'll see is that even within the New Testament, especially the epistles, there's this sense of like, maybe the climax wasn't exactly what we thought it would be or wasn't as good as we had hoped it would be or or full as we thought it would be. And so uh, I teased last episode that there's this theme of the disappointment of the Spirit. Um, So we'll talk about that. But really, it's disappointing because the expectations are so high because the idea of God returning to the world by being in human beings as little temples on mass scale with no national, ethnic, or or purity, dirtiness, impurity-related boundaries. Like there's nothing holding God back uh, other than people essentially saying yes to the invitation um, for God to enter into humanity. This is, according to the New Testament reading of the Hebrew Bible, this is where everything was pointing, um, both in the whole idea of the tabernacle being the space where God comes to live in a confined corridor, to be with the world again. The idea, even on on the first couple pages of the Bible, that God builds humans like a tabernacle and then gives them God's spirit to be within them. Uh, And then the, the line which you get put in the mouth of Moses and you get this sort of different versions of this trickled in other places in uh, the Hebrew Bible that Moses wishes everyone would have God's spirit. 
Uh, it's sort of like these little breadcrumbs along the way saying, this is sort of the ultimate hope um, that we would move beyond the tabernacle uh, to this universal God being within everyone. So it really isn't like overstating the case that this is everything that they were hoping for, everything Paul uh, had had learned to hope for, Peter had uh, seen that, that Jesus was pointing him to hope for. So they have this incredibly high expectation level. And then what we'll see is that quickly sort of hits some bumpy road and starts to fizzle. Uh, but but first, it's, it is it is the climax because this is like the ultimate return of God to the world. It's, remember, the basic idea is separation from God and humanity. And what like, how could you have more of a reunion than, than the idea that God is physically dwelling inside of each human being's body? So this was supposed to be the end, that every, everything was supposed to come back together, God and humans. And so then it happens. Uh, that moment has happened. And we've, we've been in this state for a couple thousand years now. So what should we be experiencing? Like, what was the expectation? You know what I'm saying? Like... What are the, let's just go down the check boxes. Like what are the, th- what are the signs and the things that we should be seeing? And are we seeing those things? Yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of ways to answer that question. You know, one would be like the super practical, like, you know, do we need to be speaking in tongues? Is that a thing? Right? Like what are, what are the physical manifestations that are like evidence this is happening? Another way to look at it is like the big picture thematic. I mentioned last time, the idea that the, the day of the Lord and these, uh, natural seismic natural events like earthquakes and eclipses those are sort of being overlapped with this same moment right um and lining up with the idea of this sort of eighth day the day after this the seven days of work the sort of beginning of a whole new era of human history of or of the world history like that's how big uh this event is this is the moment god returns to earth like that's what Pentecost is, according to these texts, is the moment God comes back. We mentioned it's the idea that Jesus has to leave on the cross. Jesus says it is finished, and then the Spirit departs from Jesus so that that same Spirit can come back and be essentially multiplied or divvied up uh, amongst many, many, many people. So that is the same logic to Jesus saying, you will do greater things than these, is there was one Jesus with all of God in one body, and now the idea is that hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, however many people around the whole world are going to be little Jesuses with a a portion of the Spirit. And we've talked about this before, the book of Acts, that's essentially what what the book of Acts is doing is it's layering a Jesus story and then a post-Jesus story with Jesus's disciples and, and Paul uh, sort of woven in on top of each other. So everything you see Jesus doing, now the disciples are doing, Peter and Paul. So a woman comes up to Jesus and touches Jesus's clothes, his cloak, and is healed Uh, and made clean just by touching his cloak. And then what do we read in Acts? People go up and touch Peter, and they're healed and made clean. People go up and touch Paul, and they're healed. What we're supposed to be seeing is like, oh, okay, this is the, the divvying up of whatever this science experiment was in Jesus. This same thing is now in these people. You and I have had a whole separate conversation on Utterly Heretical 
about why we shouldn't be reading Acts as the playbook for what we are expecting to see in our Christian lives. Uh, we'll, we should touch on that a little bit more today, but if you want a, a longer conversation on that, uh, go check out uh, the second podcast. But it's the, the main piece, the, the first big idea is what we're supposed to be seeing is more of what we're seeing in Jesus. So right there, <laughs> you can see there's probably, if, you know, if we're honest, going to be a whole big road to why we might talk about disappointment or unmet expectations. Because I don't think anybody, at least very rare few people, I, I think very few people claim to be experiencing the kind of what we would almost say is like magical power, right? That we see in Jesus where like things he touches are healed and he turns water into wine and he walks on water. Like, I don't think many people are claiming to have that power or to see that kind of thing in other Christians. Right. And I'm not saying we're supposed to, but that is the the first basic premise is the same thing that empowered Jesus to do whatever Jesus did and whether even we're supposed to read for instance, the walking on water story as like historical fact or not. I'm not saying that we necessarily should, but the basic idea is whatever we can think Jesus would have been like, uh, the, the writers are pretty unanimous that the reason Jesus was that is because of the secret experiment that God was living inside of Jesus. And now the, the not so secret experiment, it's the news that the church was proclaiming is God is living inside of us too, and God will live inside you as well if you're interested, mm. right? So just think about, I mean, let's just talk in real terms, yeah. <laughs> right? Like from how, we, from how we think about Jesus as the miracle worker and, you know, God in the flesh, and then what we actually experience, it's a pretty big chasm or disconnect, right? Yeah. Have you, in your, in your past history, Nate, I'm trying to think back on times when we were in the same circles, but is this something you ever had like honest, good conversations about? Did you see people wrestling with this tension? It seems like it, it sort of felt like the elephant in the room to me. Um, I just remember trying to come up with stories that were more exciting than maybe what really happened. I mean, I guess that's kind of like lying a little bit, stretching the truth. It's like trying to make uh, details in the story line up. Like then I walked around the corner and I knew it was supposed to be that corner because, you know, I saw a, you know, a red sign and I had just been thinking about the color red that morning. And then that's when I met this person around the corner. I'm not saying this specific story. I'm just trying to think of like, mm -hmm what people would do and you kind of lined it up so that when you told that story, it felt more spirit filled, I guess. And because I think honestly, we're, we were all trying to have these experiences and to, and to, to know for sure that we had Jesus inside of us, the spirit of God inside of us. Like it's all coming from this good place of wanting this to be the way it is. And then kind of coming to grips with like, well, maybe Maybe the spirit's something different than that. So this is sort of more into the reformed area that um, I, I used to I used to kind of find myself in, like thinking, well, the spirit must just reveal truth, and that's that's what's said a lot of times in that world. I think I think I'm remembering that correctly that the spirit is the one that reveals truth and rebukes and corrects and all that type of stuff. And um, and so it's like, well, maybe that's what the Spirit's doing. And if you're just looking for all these miracles to happen, you're missing all the, you know, 
quote unquote miracles of truth being revealed. That was a lot. I just put a lot out there, but yeah, no, I th- I've definitely seen that where spirit basically becomes Bible, right? And you could point to, you know, there's a line in John. It's like this: the spirit will come and remind you of all the things I've taught you. Or isn't there the one about like the spirit, uh, not translates the prayers, but that type of thing. Oh, like between the intercessor between the intercessor. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. The, the Christian and God. Yeah. Um, I mean, and there's a lot of, you see in the new Testament, a lot of variety in the things being said about the significance of the spirit, what that means for people. Um, but I think one thing you're touching on, which I think is symptomatic of, of this bigger thing we'll look at is, it's like, okay, there's there's some sort of disconnect. We're uncomfortable or we basically, we're either uncomfortable with the spirit or I think what's actually happening in a lot of situations is we the elephant is in the room and we have felt it, that there is this tension. Um, and it, and if we say that, that what the spirit means is healings and miracles and all this stuff and then we don't see those things, then we have a problem right at at some level right. but if what we say the spirit is is the bible well like we have the bible so then it's just a matter of doing bible reading the bible preaching sermons all that and we can feel okay um so i just think first i think every group of christians throughout all of church history starting honestly probably about 4 hours after pentecost happened maybe maybe 5 uh 5 with traffic <laughs> yeah foot traffic um <laughs> It's the first question is, is, is my experience lining up with this major scandalous proclamation that, that the same divine entity, the God that created the cosmos is living in me and you and you and you over there. Is that idea lining up with what I'm experiencing in my life? And then secondarily, and this is this has been, I think, more of my existential crisis, is the the second question of why isn't the world better off? Like if this if the first idea is okay, God is within us, but like I'm saying, that event is overlapped with this is the new creation. Like this is the beginning of a whole new uh, redemption of the world, where it's basically. Uh, the, the restoration of humanity as we've seen it, the reconciliation between mankind and God, the victory over the powers, all these things are supposedly at least in the process of occurring, if not already finished. Yeah. Well, then a day after Pentecost, you know, a year, and then us today, 2,000 years of this at work, this process supposedly taking place, why is the world not in better shape? Right? That's the question we all have to ask. And I'm not saying there's only one way to answer those, those questions, but I think we all have them. That is, those questions are the elephants that are in the room. And, and I think in my experience, most of us don't want to acknowledge those questions or say them out loud or, or speak openly and candidly about, you know, what it might mean the way we would answer those questions in, in different ways. Um, and, and then I think this reflecting on this has actually brought out um, 
a kind of sympathetic side for me where I think what we'll actually see, and I think it's worth, worth talking about, is that so many of the versions of Christianity that you and I pick on, Nate, or are frustrated with, whether it's Reformed Calvinism or like super, super duper spiritual world or the like get back to acts, like, you know, sell all your things and sort of like, you know, suffer for the kingdom, whatever flavor of Christianity uh, we've had issues with. I actually think there's a good chance, a good possibility that many of those have come about because of this tension and specifically because people haven't acknowledged the tension between our actual experience and what the ideas that we are saying we believe or we are believing or we are wanting to believe dictate that our experience should be, right? There's a gap and we're not talking about the gap. And I think a lot of Christianities or versions of doing Christianity have essentially been ways to try to shrink that gap or make ourselves feel like the gap isn't there, to make ourselves feel like it isn't disappointing, like the climax is really the the true happy ending and there's nothing to worry about kind of thing. Um, so the more I've reflected on them, like actually I think what we need to do is we need to talk about it uh, because potentially if, if not talking about it or avoiding it creates a sort of subconscious uh, thing, um, then maybe all we need to do is talk about it and we don't even need to have necessarily any answers. We just need to be honest. Yeah, but I guess I also think too, and if we just set up the whole story as pointing to this and then it it potentially, based on our experiences, not just you and me, but I would I would say if, if, a, if most Christians are being honest, they haven't experienced some of what they would expect the Spirit would look like or Jesus would look like um, in the form of, of the Spirit. You know, if that's if this is where the story was supposed to go, does that mean the story wasn't true or right, or is that the should we not be thinking about it as true and right, but more as maybe we were supposed to be disappointed? I don't know. I you know what I'm saying? No, and isn't that? I mean, that's to me is the that's the fear, right? Like, if if this whole claim, if the Christian claim, is even at like ten percent, my suggestion is it's. This is the centerpiece, the, the whole idea of the Holy Spirit living in people. This is the center. So it's more than 10%. It's bigger than that. But even if we're just 10% of the idea of Christianity was was disappointing at some level, right? Like every time I say that word, even though this is something I've sat with for a while, it, it feels like a hard word to let come out of my mouth yeah. <laughs> in talking about like, you know, Chris, is Christianity disappointing, right? Like that... That's not necessarily the way I want to frame this question, but I think that that is under this question of like the reality of life with the spirit. And there's a lot to be afraid of there. <laughs> a lot, right? On a on a individual level, you know, how much fear has there been of like the reason people do so many altar calls, right? and try to get saved again and again and again because it's this insecurity, uh, this fear that you somehow, whether it's based on like something you did or you're not feeling the right 
like spiritual feeling or you're not hearing from God in prayer. It's this question of like, am I really real? Like, is this legit or am I a fraud? Because I'm not experiencing these things. I need to have more faith and then I will experience these things. I need to be closer to God and then I'll experience these things. Yeah. Yeah. Or even I need to experience something that will let me calm down for five minutes. Right. And I would say that is the basic felt need that drives 90% of contemporary worship music and what what like non-denominational church services are. They are designed to give you an emotional adrenaline rush that will make you feel like it's real so that th- that will hopefully carry you through the rest of of the week. I mean, why do we use music so much? And I'm not anti-music, right? Like I I love music uh, and I get good feelings from a lot of different kinds of music and and I like that. And I'm not even necessarily anti like well, some days I am, worship music. <laughs> but just think about what it means that like there's a feeling that we feel through music that we don't feel through having a conversation or taking the Eucharist or like silent prayer meditation. There's something that like a really melodic, uh, dark lights, like, mood setting, uh, music thing can do to make your brain feel things. <laughs> and, and why do we need to feel those things in our religious service? I would argue that's because we're looking to, to have an experience or a feeling that gives us a sense of confidence and security. Like that's the thing. And I would say, looking back on, you know, 10 plus years of, of regular church life, 90% of the times that I felt like it was the God thing was usually just like getting in the groove musically. I think for me, what was very telling is when uh, I, I started to feel those very, very similar feelings listening to, you know, a live Coldplay show or something like that um, where everyone... 100,000 people are singing, you know, Viva La Vida together or or something like that, you know, when it when it comes to that chorus and they're all just belting it out together, you feel that like that you know, very real feeling in the middle of your body. I I, I you know, I almost don't even have to explain it cuz I think we all know sort of that feeling I'm talking about where you just kind of feel like alive and like warm or something like that. Um and you know that's that's what i often looked for in religious experiences was was that to tell me that like specifically i i was a worship leader so specifically in worship experience in music uh within a um christian context like i was i was looking to create that and i was looking to feel that as a sign that yeah like something is right here i i feel i guess it's like the word moved maybe like and not not necessarily like tears, but just like it's like a I don't know. I think we all as humans we know we know what I'm talking about that that feeling I'm talking about. But um, yeah, and I guess what I'm trying to say is feeling that outside of a religious spiritual context has um, made me realize and wonder if that's just something that happens when you know the 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 mood and the um, the amount of people in the audience and just the whole thing is just right and 
you know, you really feel that piece of music or that, that moment or, and that lines up with stuff that you've already been feeling before this. And, you know, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, uh, I don't know if you listened to it yet, but our friend and fellow, uh, Oregonian, uh, Crispin Mayfield, who recently started a new podcast, uh, with a, a friend. Oh yeah. Discussing. Go go, you got to go check this podcast out. You got to check yeah, it out. It's called Attached to the Invisible, is the name of the podcast. And he's a therapist and he's very interested in a, attachment theory um, in psychology and is essentially talking about attachment theory, but then sort of applying that to theology. And one of the things that they discussed uh, in one of their first episodes was how so much of contemporary music lyrics are essentially us singing essentially pleas for God to come be close to us, Hmm, right? Like so much of the songs, and they were some of the songs that were like really getting us moving, you know, or feeling moved, was begging for for God to come be with us, right? Well, like first, and, and some of Crispin's point was like, that's the exact, basically that is emblematic of some poor attachment is when kids are are the ones responsible for uh, creating attachments between them and their parents, right. right? Like secure attachment comes from when your parents are consistently uh, making you feel connected. And so he's, they're sort of pointing out like, what is wrong here that we have a theology where the responsibility is on, in, in the metaphor, on the children um, to maintain uh, the attachment? He's like, no wonder we're all basically, we're like theologically anxious and theologically insecurely attached uh, to God. Um, but, but also, I just think, like, what are we doing? We're begging for the experience that we are then simultaneously proclaiming is already true and has been true for 2,000 years, which is that God is here, right? Right. And so, one, that's just indicative that there is <laughs> there's a tension in our lived experience, if we're going to proclaim something is true and then and then beg for God to show that that is true week in and week out. But I also think that's why part of why we are singing those kinds of lyrics was like a that's what we felt and b like that was to to like some in some sense that's what church was was to get to the point again where we finally felt like our experience lived up to the idea. And, and then, and that was like the high point, right? At the end of the worship set or at communion or whatever. But the va- the vast majority uh, was was not that. Let me just back up really quick because I feel like an explanation that I would have given for this that I don't feel, I, I don't give this anymore, but would be that, well, this, beca- this is because sin still exists in the world. Right, so that's why it's the it's the term already not yet. Mm. So like we're in the kingdom, but we're like it's it's a not yet kingdom as well, and that's going to come fully when Jesus returns. Like I feel like that's the explanation I would give, and I and honestly like that makes a bit of sense in my head. It is it's convenient too to say that like any time that you're not experiencing this, then that's just you know should remind you to long for Jesus to come back and and make make it so it's we experience this all perfectly but mm-hmm. yeah i don't know I, I guess i'm wrestling with no i'm with that because it does it does explain some things I'm, well i'm glad you brought it up though because have you ever noticed um if people have been sort of 
reading, uh, I guess, the last 10 years of theology, they've probably heard that term already, but not yet, right? It's kind of everywhere. It's relatively new, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's new that it's been popularized this way. I don't know that the basic premise is, is all that new, but, um, but, okay, have you ever noticed that pretty much, you know, the, the majority of theologians, especially popular level theologians, use that framework to explain m- much, if not most, of, of what otherwise would feel like there's a tension in the, in the text, in the Bible, that there's this already but not yet. You know, it's like, are we holy, but are we becoming holy? And never mind the fact that I think holiness means something totally different than what most people think it does. But it's like, well, the answer is this already but not yet. It's partly here, but it's going to be in full. It's like, what about, you know, are we waiting for Jesus to come back or is it going to happen after? And it's like this, it's the answer to so many questions, right? Or the explainer, the convenient explainer. But have you ever noticed that nowhere in the text does it ever talk about that, right? Like the texts themselves never use anything like that language. I don't even, it's not just like they don't use the phrase already, but not yet. I mean, like they don't say anything like that. They don't say like Jesus came and so now, and then the spirit, his spirit left and then came to dwell with all of us. And so now we're, you know, we should be expecting the things that Jesus did, but not fully. It doesn't say like, yeah, but we have to wait for the full revelation of the Spirit when Jesus comes back. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is like it, it's noteworthy and it's something I've sort of been scratching at for years actually because it felt noteworthy. In fact, it felt a little troubling that because it's not just like, oh, this is an element of the New Testament. It's like the the already but not yet thing is, is the predominant thing way by which we should understand the entire context of the New Testament. Like that is the framework that holds everything you're going to read and think about up. Like that's the table upon which Christian theology stands is this idea that some of it's occurred and some of it has not yet occurred, right? Hmm. But what I'm saying is, isn't it troubling that we're saying this is like the golden tool, this is the the one hammer to rule them all. And yet nobody talks about it within those texts. Isn't that strange? Sure. Yeah. That, I mean, that should always be concerning, right? When you don't see that, not just that phrase, but you don't see that idea that, you know, it's complete, but it's going to be more complete later. Right. But I mean, don't you see that though a bit like, well, so I, un- I'm not even necessarily disagreeing with even the phrase, but here's what I, here's what I think is no one, that I've read has, I don't think, been honest enough with why that actually does come about, with with why we see already in some places, and then we see a lot of not yet in other places. It's presented as if, like, this is what everybody thought all along. Like, Jesus spent a couple years with his friends, and then they got the memo, and they're like, okay, so some of this is going to happen now, and some of this will happen later, and this will be how we understand all of life. It was not that at all. The already but not yet phrase is another way of saying climax and utter disappointment. That's what it actually is. And I've actually been, it was sort of shocking to start to see this, and then I realized it's everywhere, especially in the epistles, but then it actually became encouraging, like a sort of a bomb uh, to to me, is the idea that what we actually are witnessing in the epistles is 
is people wrestling with the the disappointment, the surprise, the scandal of how little that they thought was going to be solved has actually been solved, how much is still wrong with their life and their neighbors' lives and the world, how much, you know, in this great eighth day, the new day of creation, the the day of the Lord where God returns to the world and heals all things, how much of that hasn't actually happened. And I and I think it's just dishonest and not helpful. I think there it's it's dishonest to to say uh, they knew all along that this was kind of how it was going to be, and this was all part of the plan. That's how I've heard the already but not yet thing used. And I actually think it's more helpful to us. And there's, you know, I don't necessarily use this term all the time, but there's like this pastoral kind of um, uh, hope. I actually think in seeing the writers of the New Testament epistles dealing with the same dejection and desperation and doubt and even despair that many of us have have felt because that can make us feel less crazy less alone it it may put other problems on our plate uh to to deal with or wrestle with um but it also has a plus side i think of seeing um <laughs> they were we're not broken my experience of the holy spirit is not the problem, right? I am not the problem. You are not the problem, Nate. Um, our denomination, whatever, you know what I mean? Like there is a problem and we can all sit here together and talk about it. Okay. Yeah. This is interesting. You, you mentioned this on the utterly heretical episode that there are places, uh, where the, the new Testament writers wrestle with this. Can you show me like your favorite one? Sure. Yeah. So I actually think, um, let me frame it a little big picture. Uh, cause I want to actually, I'll give a couple examples, and one I was just reading this morning that just stuck out to me that we'll uh, get to. But to frame it a little big picture, um, so that r- listeners can go maybe try to see some of this uh, on your own, is I think you have an Acts, the book of Acts, version of the hope of the Holy Spirit and the hope of Christianity, when we're talking in this conversation, when we're, when we're talking about the Spirit, it's not like a discussion like, what are the 10 attributes of the Spirit? It's the idea of God's Spirit living in humans, and, and I'm saying that is the absolute center point of Christianity. So we're sort of talking about <laughs> everything, right? This isn't a si- like a side compartmentalized little topic. Um, in Acts, you have almost a comic book version where what we're seeing is the big miracles, the crazy healings, thousands of people being transformed. Literally, you just touch Peter's clothes and you're healed. And it's, again, it's a way of saying, it's a way of layering Peter and Paul onto Jesus. Um, but but then what you have in the epistles, and I, and I'm thankful now for the epistles in a new kind of way, it's like the realist version of the spirit. It's like, well, what is what are we actually dealing with here? Because they're letters, right? The book of Acts is literature. And uh, again, something we talked about in the side podcast, it's literature in line with the kind of literature that the gospels are, which one way of thinking about what they are is kind of like a comic book literature. It's telling big mythological type uh, stories. 
the epistles are letters that we are reading that people were writing to other people to wrestle with real questions and issues. And what we'll see is there's a huge difference in the way the epistles talk about the Spirit and the way the Acts talks about the Spirit. So essentially, I think there's a Spirit in Acts and a Spirit in the epistles. And it's not like they're talking about two different entities or figures, but one is like, here's the great big climactic hope, the ultimate storyline of Israel's scriptures. And then the other one is like, well, what the heck do we do with this? Like, what is happening? How do I make sense of this? So uh, a couple big picture examples, you'll, you'll probably be familiar with some of this language, but it may not have struck you that to me, this is the language of consolation or um, like secondary comfort. Hmm. So the Paul calls the spirit a first fruits uh, or uh, a sign or a seal or a guarantee of future things and inheritance. James talks about the spirit is a sign that we don't need to be afraid in the judgment. Okay, so just think about this. Originally, I'm saying the idea is the claim in the book of Acts is that the moment of Pentecost when the Spirit comes is God returning to the world. It's the moment where everything begins to be set right. And then some of the primary language we see of Paul is actually what the Spirit is, is a sign to us that we have good things to look forward to in the future that aren't happening yet. Just like think about the difference between those two things for a sec. Yeah, it seems like when I just evaluate my life, um, I feel like, you know, the first 20-ish years were about the the second part. Like we have so much to look forward to in the future. Um, and kind of the idea of like heaven and, or, or then eventually with, I think, better theology came along, the idea of like new creation and heaven coming to earth. And, and yeah, there's still, there's still aspects of that that um, do encourage me sometimes. Um, and then the, the latter part, like when I was a pastor and, and those type of those, those years, I feel like was more focused. It was, it was that, but it was also focused on sort of that first part of like, no, but we should be expecting more. We should be expecting more of our, um, you know, basically our experience of the spirit should be, you know, more like, more like acts and getting back to acts. But yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I see what you're saying that by by kind of re, it's almost like recalculating on the GPS. Um, it's like okay, let's we haven't seen this yet, um, and so Paul's saying this must be coming then in the future. This let's let's push this forward a bit um, because we we know that whatever this is must be beautiful. God being fully with humans must be a wonderful, beautiful thing. And if we're not seeing that fully, then it must be somewhere up ahead. Although I still think the, but we live in a time of, of sin and the, the worldly realm where sin is winning, that kind of explains it too. But just being honest there. Well, sure. And so I'm, I don't need to um, fight or pick on that way of, again, answering or maybe say responding to this question. What I want to pick on is pretending the question isn't isn't there, pretending this tension doesn't exist. Right. So another one, like interestingly, um, what I, big picture, what I think you see happening in the epistles, what I think is uh, those couple, the, the language of the spirit being essentially a, a testimony for good things in the future. 
um, that passing the torch forward, passing the buck forward. What I think that is uh, indicative of is this bigger picture theme of what you see in the epistles. Arguably, the most recurrent theme in every single one of the New Testament documents that is not a gospel or the book of Acts is patience and perseverance. And it's coming from (laughs) impatience. It's coming from uh, a doubt and a questioning and a, um, a, you know, a lack of faith, essentially, that current experience is not congruous. It's not indicative that with the ideas uh, that have been set forth. So it's like Peter saying, (laughs) quoting these, quote, scoffers, where is this coming uh, that he promised, that Jesus promised? And then says the famous line, with the Lord today is like a thousand years. What is Peter doing? He's saying like, I know people are trash talking. Like your whole belief, and this is a, this is sort of a subsidiary side of this. Our whole belief was that Jesus was coming back like next year, a few years down the road, maybe a couple months. And everybody's sitting around going like, y'all are crazy. Y'all are totally crazy. And, and obviously, I think inherently, a lot of people are sitting around going, we're crazy, <laughs> right? Mm. Like the very thing we believed was crazy. There's a line in James 5.8. It just says this. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. That letter was written over 1900 years ago, right? So what we see is there are pieces of the New Testament where people are hoping for something that's going to happen right now very soon, imminently. And then you have other pieces, and especially in Paul's later letters, uh, which I'm really glad we have, because it shows this change. It shows some of this development over time where it starts to sound very differently. And Paul's like, actually, you know what? He starts to sound very dualistic. He's like, as long as we're in our human bodies, none of this is really going to happen. Like that's a very far departure from Jesus is coming back, Everything's going to be made new right away. And like death still exists. And until death is defeated on the other side of death, we're still slaves even to our human bodies. Paul starts saying things (laughs) at times in letters that I don't think Paul could have said when he's like in his fresh out the gates, newly, newly zealous for Jesus years. Um, and, and one, I wish the church would talk about this far more, is in Philippians 1, we read over a passage and we read it as this kind of like spiritual encouragement. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul's saying he wants to die. I think, actually, I haven't read it, but I think even N.T. Wright, who is far more conservative than me in most things, has has tried to point this out, that Paul is in such despair, uh, both because his life is hell, essentially, physically suffering, um, and I think because so much of what he's hoped is going to happen is is being really slow to happen. Uh, this What he's banked his whole life on, right? All the letters are like, exist because what Paul thought or hoped would happen right away is taking a while. So they're having to work it out in conversation. Um, but, but I don't think we stop on the fact that like 
this isn't this cute, like, oh, I just want to go live with Jesus. This is like, life is so bad, I'd rather die. Like, this is actually suicidal ideation encapsulized in the letter to the Philippians. And so one, like, I, I don't want to say that um, uh, casually, right? Like to, to, you know, and I don't want to be casual or dismissive of, of people who struggle with suicidal ideation or depression. Or whatever. I actually am trying to say this because I think it, it's validating in a sense that like the guy who's the captain of this whole thing is experiencing uh, such tension. Um, and I'm not saying he like lost his faith or whatever, but I think that's maybe part of what's happening here. But his lived experience was so much worse and less resolved, less solved, less of the, you don't need therapy, you just need Jesus, right? Like Paul had Jesus. <laughs> Paul had a lot of Jesus, right? Yeah. And his life wasn't fixed and his, his community's life wasn't fixed and the world was still a crap, a mess. Like <laughs> the world was still a mess. Something bad. <laughs> Some bad things. Yeah. <laughs> bad yeah. word. The world is still a mess. And so, so Paul, I think here, and, and this is again, just one little example is, is wrestling this. So big picture, I think what we see, and again, go explore for yourself. What's happening is the creation of, I think, a comforting compromise. The way the Spirit gets talked about mostly after the book of Acts is a compromise from what they hoped the Spirit would mean in real life. And it's a compromise that is, that is trying to give people hope. The whole book of Revelation, the whole letter to the Hebrews, they're all about trying to keep people from going totally despair mode from completely abandoning the whole idea, right? That's where the idea of perseverance and the idea of maintaining faith and all that, those calls, it's not like don't listen to the secular thing and stay away from secular colleges, like be religious. It's like, I know you are despairing so much because your life is so terrible. And the the thing that we have all proclaimed to believe was that everything was gonna get a lot better, right? Not that it would necessarily be peachy or perfect or whatever, but that, that God was going to be here to be working for the good of people, right? Th there's just this massive tension. And I think in the texts, the movement to, to point beyond the present to the future, I actually think the whole idea of going to heaven is rooted in this disappointment. Like Paul starts talking, even this text here in Philippians 1, in coming up with an idea that it would be better to leave the world and go to heaven to get out of the pain and suffering that is in this world. That idea, which no, we know has been carried systematically into Protestant uh, Christian culture, is essentially a new creation, an invention, uh, that would have been foreign to the basic story that we've looked at from Leviticus on, right? Foreign to the Hebrew scriptures. The whole hope was God was coming to the world. God was coming back to humanity to fix things. And now here Paul wants to leave and go away, <laughs> right? Like this isn't the same articulation that Paul of the faith that Paul was giving. Right, but many people now articulate that as new creation and heaven coming to earth instead of 
us, you know, flying away onto the clouds. Like that seems to be a pretty kind of mainstream way of, of viewing afterlife or the, or the next step. I just want to throw that out there. No, totally. And, and so now there's been this whole new wave of people trying to push back on the pendulum and say, no, it's about bringing the kingdom of God to earth and in heaven and earth uniting and life here and now, right? Which I think you and I and many others have appreciated that sort of like push on the pendulum. Right. My point is like, hey, let's not miss why we ever got to that heaven theology in the first place. It was because we weren't willing to acknowledge this deep tension in our in between what we actually experience and what, for instance, the book of Acts and the gospels and some of the early writings and the epistles suggested was going to happen, right? And so for, for me, my own personal existential crisis, it's like I shared, it's been less the like, am I experiencing enough spirit feeling moments? I've had those insecurities for sure. For me, it's the 2000 years. And specifically, it's 2000 years where in the, in the Western Christianized world, like it's, there has been a world that has been evangelized and Christianized for over a thousand years, meaning the whole excuse of just, well, how can anyone believe if they haven't heard? And how can anyone hear if they haven't been told? And how can anyone be told if we haven't sent them in this missionary flair? That doesn't work to do anything with my existential crisis. <laughs> because in my pocket of the world, everybody's been Christian for damn near forever, right? Or at least not here in North America, but the Europeans that brought their medieval Christianity over to North America. So we don't have the excuse of like, what the early church would have had, what Paul would have had is at least, well, just not enough people are participating yet. Right. Right? Like to me, Christianity being the world's largest religion, two billion something people proclaiming Christianity, and this is the state of the world. And in my view, some of the worst injustices in the world being perpetuated by those people leads to this massive disconnect between experience and and the proclamation of of belief well thanks for hanging out with us. just kidding <laughs> i think what i would have said though is more people just need to be radical christians then you know we have a lot of people professing jesus but we always knew that was gonna be the case right that a lot of people are gonna say you know i'm a christian um but they're not really willing to like count up the cost of following jesus and be a, this kind of radical christian and if they were then we would see some of these changes that we're hoping and expecting. Yeah. Do you have any right. thoughts on that? No, And I mean, okay. So we worked with Francis Chan. His whole ministry is about getting back to the book of Acts. And if the church was radical enough to try to live like they did in Acts, then it would be the real church. And then the real results would come out. For one, people have been doing that for the duration of church history, right? Like a dude lived up on a pole to prove his devotion to God for like two decades, right? <laughs> like people have been ruthlessly, radically religious and ruthlessly, radically Christian throughout human history. But, but part of my thing is like, okay, if you do that and then anyone who touches your clothes is immediately healed, great. 
let's talk. But if you do that, and still 95% of your experience doesn't line up with supposed, you know, Acts Christianity or the life of Jesus, again, I'm not saying it should. I'm saying what it means is then we still need to have a conversation about the disconnect and the idea that if we're just more radical, more zealous, uh, that then all then there this tension will just slowly dissipate, right? It's a myth. So to me, I actually, this is where, again, maybe I sound judgmental. To me, it's actually some of my sympathetic side. Like you and I have had our frustrations with that kind of like get back to Acts Christianity. We've also had our frustrations with penal substitutionary atonement driven Christianity. Um, We haven't talked about it as much because neither you or I were super traumatized by end of the world predictions and crazy rapture. Uh, stuff, but there are tens of thousands of Americans who grew up in this weird world of dispensational uh, end times prediction, uh, Tim LaHaye kind of thing, and have been desperately traumatized by it. And so I've got a big beef with that whole version of Christianity. To me, all three of those actually are different desperate attempts to to come up with a version of Christianity that makes us feel like this tension doesn't exist. So just, just track with me real quickly. Like why, why create, why invent a hundred years ago, a, a Christianity that's based on this whole idea of, of a rapture. And then constantly, essentially there's always somebody predicting the world's going to end. Right. Because that's one way of making 2000 years of history make some sort of sense. Like it's, it was all essentially just leading up to this point. My existential crisis comes from, I don't think the world's going to end. I think we might all destroy ourselves, but history will, will trudge on. And that's why I feel like, man, how do I make sense of 2000 years of history? And so little has changed. Right? So one way I think of, of coming up with a, a way of eliminating or making you feel like the attention has been eliminated is to, is to constantly be sort of pushing the baton forward. Like, no, now's the end. No, now's the time. No, now's the time. It doesn't sound much different than James saying, Hey, don't worry. Jesus is coming back next week. Right. Uh, it's has the same sort of psychological effect, but then too, like the penal substitution thing, which we don't need to wax on again on why we're, we've been frustrated with it or find it problematic. But, like if my my tension or Paul's tension, I think, is is coming from the fact that the whole idea was that all this theology was going to change real life here and now, human lives, societies, communities, empires. Those were all going to be intrinsically affected mm-hmm. by God coming back to the world. Well, then again, our crisis, our struggle is that so many things have not been affected or not been affected to the extent that we would have expected or hoped, right? So another way to resolve that tension is to come up with a version of Christianity where there's basically God is mad, we're going to go to hell, Jesus did something that allows us to go to heaven instead, and all we have to do is a couple things now that will have little to no effect on the world around us, but are just about securing some future benefit on the basis of some essentially invisible heavenly legal decree, right? It's convenient. 
like that word you used. It's convenient because I now have a, a Christianity that fits with a world that, that hasn't been very affected by my Christianity, right? Paul didn't have a category for a world that wasn't dramatically flipped on its head by the advent of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. But we can create one to resolve the tension that Paul was sitting in, right? We can create a theology in which actually all that really happened is God changed God's mind up in heaven, right? And I can put a bumper sticker on my car that essentially says, you're really not going to see much different about me or anything around me, but just know that in the end I get to go to heaven, right? Yeah. What is that doing? At some deep level, it's, and again, this isn't me picking on it. It's actually trying to say, what if we all just stopped and talked about the fact that what the basic hope of the New Testament was is also something that the New Testament itself is, is speaking of in terms of a kind of a letdown or a disappointment. Not that God failed. Paul talks about this. Peter addresses this. But the whole reason Peter has to say God's not slow is because he's talking to people who are saying God is really slow, Right? And so what we do is we say, like, don't even think that. Don't talk about that. And we're saying that, you know, the New Testament letters are very early, the New Testament documents, well within the first century, right, after, after Jesus. And so we're talking now 20 times later, more than that. Uh, we've got to be able to admit um, that God feels slow, or it feels like nothing's really happening, or it feels like none of this is actually true right now, or in this way, or in this sphere. Uh, and until we do, my concern is like, we'll keep making new penal substitutionary atonement versions of Christianity, yeah. or we'll make the next rapture American dispensationalism concoction of things to make it feel like these tensions don't exist. We may do them in more progressive, less toxic ways, um, but we're still we're still going to have this psychological need to make our theology fit our our lives, basically. Yeah, no, I love this. I mean, it's it's all about being open and honest with what we're actually experiencing and feeling as as human beings, you know. And that's it's really hard to do in general in life to be honest and uh, and real about what you're actually experiencing. But I think it's even harder within spiritual and religious communities. I know I experienced that. It was really hard. I almost didn't even know I wasn't being honest with what I was thinking, mm-hmm. right? Like I yeah. I almost didn't even know that wasn't happening because when there's so many people around you kind of pushing you to continue, it's it's really hard to, to, to see some of this stuff um, and to realize and like sit. I mean, it took me probably a year or two after saying, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna, I, I noticed my theology changing. I noticed some things um, you know, not being able to believe certain things anymore that I was teaching. And so I, I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a break here from being a pastor and from, and from teaching things because I, I don't know that I believe the things and agree with the things that I'm saying. And I want to just kind of look at this all again. It, it took probably a couple years of kind of stepping outside that circle and outside that, uh, that experience to be able to start to, uh, say, well, what do I, what am I actually, you know, if I'm being true and real, what am I actually feeling? And what do I actually think? What do I actually believe is happening, is really happening? Um, 
yeah, like it just, it just takes a long time and it's really hard in those, in those specific circles. But, but yeah, I, I love this because I just had this thought of like, this is so much more human, this direction of, of thinking and, and like, let's just, let's just pause here. Time out, you know, let me just picture like the, the whistle, like it's the time out, time out. <laughs> like, let's just talk about this. Are we, do we actually feel really, really excited about the spirit? Maybe some people do, maybe you've had a different experience than us and that's, you know, or you have a friend that's had a different experience and that's totally fine. But for those that are resonating and feel like, yeah, you know, I've, I've always felt this way. I've always felt like I just can't, I can't get excited about this because I'm not seeing it. Not just thought, not just not seeing the miracles, but you know, when I look at the world, I look at the cities and communities and like, yeah, like I can do my part and make, make it the world a little bit better as I think most religious or non-religious people are trying to do. But shouldn't shouldn't we be in a different state of things um after 2000 years of this and so like just this thought of what if this is what if being open and honest and connecting with other human beings that are here now but also have have been around for thousands of years um also feeling these same type of things you know scared of death right what what do we have in common as as humans what do we have in common as, as people who claim christianity in this line of of you know, believing in Jesus. We have the fear of death because that's just a general human thing that human beings have. We don't know what happens because we don't have any information on that. We don't have any data on that. Well, we have data, but we want to believe something something more and additional happens. I'm not saying it doesn't. I don't know. Um, But fear of death. And then I think this, as a Christian, this disappointment in this... uh, being underwhelmed, I think is another way of saying it too, in what we have experienced of this thing that is, that was, you know, we were told and what we read in the Bible is like supposed to change everything. It's supposed to be this amazing thing. And if the main thing it changes is we don't go to hell. Well, what happens when you don't think hell is (laughs) either doesn't exist or isn't what people say it is then like, okay, well then that benefit is taken away so what, what is it? Like, doesn't it make the world better? It's like, yeah, it makes the world a better place, but I'm looking around and I'm not seeing that. So I think these are, these are things that, that if we, if we are open and we're honest and we're willing to look like a little bit of a, well, a heretic, first of all, because you're, if you, if you start to raise this, I think you do look like a heretic because you're not, you're not trusting, you're not having faith. Right. And that's a, that's a big thing is like maintaining that, that faith and not showing any cracks but if we could just do that, if we could just be open and honest, I think it connects us to so many more humans and this human experience of um, what we're what we're really what's really going on inside of us. And and to me, in in my experience, that has always yielded just a much more contemplative and 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 hopeful just position within myself of like this connection to those who have gone before. And the experiences that they had in their life, and watching, you know, even just look at Paul, like his theology changing as he, as he aged on this on this topic, as he approached death, and like what was he thinking, how was he wrestling with that reality of what was about to happen to him, um, and just you know, and then thousands and thousands of humans that we've never read about, like, it just connects us to all of that, and I wonder if that's some of the point of what we're supposed to be seeing here. Totally, yeah, and just for those that are <clears throat> on the more Bible interested or devoted side of things, you know, I've just tried to summarize, but I think it's what you said is, 
it's a big it's a big point and i don't think it's debatable i mean we can have the debate i don't i don't think it's hard to prove that that the people writing the epistles are wrestling through this stuff right and they are changing they're feeling frustrations they're speaking to people who are feeling frustrations and the one i said there's a verse <laughs> that i've stumbled upon this morning and i just haven't been able to stop thinking about it uh it's in first john 5 i think it's even like this little bit of canonized evidence that like they're stumbling around with it too uh and you know we're so used to reading the bible as like god's answers right right and and it's so hard for us to think about the bible as um human questions Wow. Yeah. No. That's that's really good. God's answers versus human questions. I don't know if I've heard it explained in those terms before, but yeah, I, I know I really like that. But just look at look at this line. Like I don't. I've sat with it. I'm like I don't even know what to do with this other than to say this is John bumbling. But in chapter four, he's talking about the spirit and how God is in us and God is love. So love is in us, and that means we're in Jesus and Jesus. So he's like. This is what he's focusing on. Like, what does it mean that God is living in, in people, right? And then he gets into chapter five and then he starts talking about, well, that means we can pray and we have kind of like Hebrews, we have this confidence to approach God. So in verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So on one hand that like, you you just read right over that. On the other hand, like, what did you just say? Like you're, you're wrestling with what does it mean that God lives in me? And the response is, whatever I ask for in prayer, I just know that I already have that thing. In what world is that real? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like in what world? Is that, like there, maybe this is like we have an inheritance in heaven with Christ. And so like existentially, like we sort of already... But what he's saying, again, I'm just like, this is a man bumbling for some meaning making, right? In this confusing uh, time. Like we think of the guys writing these letters as like guys that had it all figured out. And I'm actually, the more I look at this, I'm like, these were guys in, in utter ideological existential crises who had answers at some points and massive confusion and questions at other points. That doesn't mean God wasn't in whatever it is I just read to you. But what do you like? What do you and I, Nate, even do with that? If I pray, I know because God is in me that I already have what I prayed for. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, and that's when when you talk about even like we've and we've talked about the word inspiration before and God inspiring things. But I mean, if it's if it's human questions, then like God can be inspiring these human questions this human experience like and and that we have this record and we have this written down and it's encouraging to me because i see someone bumbling and trying to figure this all out as well that's way more encouraging to me than like oh yeah there's john sitting down writing his theology book you know so i don't know i i love this and yeah we need to keep being honest more often and not just on a podcast too but like i mean i would encourage you you listener be willing to be open and honest with this and even with other people it's, it might change how they perceive you and how they look at you, but it's going to be a much more human experience for you. And maybe you'll, maybe you'll be able to make a human connection. What I've found too, is sometimes when you're open and honest with this, with other people, even the person that you think like, you think like, Oh no, they're just going to try to like preach theology back to me or get me back in line and, you know, try to 
douse my my de- my doubt or whatever, um, often they'll reveal some of these feelings that they've had as well. And uh, I, I can't guarantee that's going to happen or whatever, but like, y- you might be surprised that might happen with somebody that you didn't think it would happen with. And, um, okay, appreciate you spending time with us today, and uh, it's been it's been fun. It's been a good conversation. We do have other conversations that you can check out on our second podcast that we've mentioned. It's called Utterly Heretical. You can get that at almostheretical.com or at Patreon.com/slash/almostheretical. We'll continue the conversations next time. Peace out.